welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I'm Tom Seymour, a barrister at Morgan Sports Law, and I'm joined today by my colleague Ben Cisneros, a trainee solicitor at the firm. We are very happy that we also have with us two special guests. The first is Dan Leo, who is the CEO of Pacific Rugby Players Welfare, or PRPW. Dan played for London Wasps, Bordeaux, Perpignan, London Irish, and London Welsh over the course of his career, and earned 39 caps for Samoa. Dan set up PRPW in 2016, and the organization now has over 600 members. Second, we are joined by Matt Tamua, who is an Australian international rugby player of Samoan heritage. Matt, formerly of Leicester Tigers and the Brumbies, currently plays for the Melbourne Rebels and has 47 caps for the Wallabies. Matt was also very recently appointed as president of the Rugby Union Players Association, so congratulations to Matt for that. Welcome, everybody. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having us on. Now, in today's episode, we will be discussing World Rugby's current governance review, which was announced in June 2020. PRPW, an independent player association representing the interests of rugby players from the Pacific Islands, made submissions to the review in the form of the Velamani report. That report identified a number of issues with the governance of World Rugby that were relevant to PRPW members and to the sport as a whole. Ben advised PRPW on the drafting of its report. World Rugby subsequently responded to the publication of the report by refuting its unsubstantiated and erroneous claims regarding voting influence and other governance matters. So with that introduction, let's move on to the discussion. And Matt, the first thing that I wanted to ask you is you've played for Australian national teams throughout your career. And that being the case, what made you decide to get involved with PRPW? Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. Oh, Dan and I have a very close link anyway, so I was obviously aware of what he's been doing, particularly up in the Northern Hemisphere to start with. And when once I moved up there, I'm obviously acutely aware of the situation there and, yeah, the, how, how much the Pacific Islands really contributes to the world game, whether it be in Australia or whether it be in England. And very much, you know, as the name implies, welfare, very much concerned and, and focused on to helping uh, those guys who've, who've moved over there, moved away from home, but also just doing the right thing by rugby. and giving back to the, the countries who have provided the sport with, you know, with so much. So, um, yeah, very, very privileged to be a part of it. You know, we've been on a nice long journey and I've enjoyed every bit of it. Thanks, Matt. And, and Dan, what do you hope that this governance review that World Rugby has launched will achieve? Well, good question. I mean, there's, there's, there's always a lot of issues when it comes to rugby and, and definitely Pacific rugby governance right at, right at the top of them is an organization i felt for a long time that if we're going to impact the you know the state of of rugby in our in our nations and our diaspora around the world it's really a sense of creating a, a fairer playing field mm-hmm. for pacific island players uh and and those national teams at the, at the top of the sport but that drip feeds right down to you know the way that you know the, the funding that goes right through through the game to, to grassroots level so um, yeah, I think the key word for us um, and what we want to achieve through the uh, the Vela Mani report that we submitted and the, uh, World Rugby's Greater Governance Review is an increased fairness across the game. You know, it's what rugby, it's the key value that um, rugby build itself on and, and ways to the world. So we just want to make sure that's in line with uh, how the game's actually operating. And what does what does Vela Mani mean? Vela Mani is the Fijian word for loving loving one another. Again, it, we, we feel that that was an appropriate uh, name for, for the report that we submitted, that mutual respect um, that we have on, on the field as players, but also off it, you know, in the way that we 
conduct ourselves um, as people as um, underpins the sport really and it's what sets us aside you know when people think about rugby you, you think about the values that are behind behind that and respect and solidarity really being at the forefront of those and so is your view that if your recommendations are implemented it won't just be for the benefit of the pacific nations and pacific island players but also for rugby as a whole yeah exactly you know rugby's in a, a precarious state as all sports are at the moment particularly you know given the the new challenge of covid definitely not a, 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 the global game that um, that we ho- we hope and know that rugby can be and and our our, our belief you know even before covid was is that you know rugby's at, it was it was at a, a place where it needed to be embraced and inclusive of all you know, genders, uh, classes, uh, nationalities across the board. And um, we've seen rugby make great strides in, in, in those areas, in some of those areas. And, you know, there's still other areas that, that you know, the game needs to, to improve upon. And we felt that we, you know, we, within the Vela Mani report, we, we covered uh, quite a few of those. And Ben, what, what do you hope that the World Rugby Governance Review will or might achieve? Well, I mean, there's a number of quite specific things that I'd hope it could achieve, many of which hopefully we'll discuss today. But broadly speaking, I'd like to see a stronger commitment to the principles of good governance and to the idea of fair play for all the member unions of World Rugby. I mean, there's various sort of documents in which these ideas of good sports governance have been enshrined, the IOC's basic universal principles and the IOC's code of ethics being two examples. And I think what I'd like to see is world rugby taking in governance a bit more seriously and, and trying to look at these sort of standards that have been set internationally and try, trying to meet them. And Matt, perhaps more, more broadly, this is really about the broadest question I could ask, what do you think needs to change from a Pacific Island perspective in terms of the way world rugby organises itself? As a player, Tom, I think it's just the, in particular, from my point of view, I think it's the visibility of, of a lot of the nations. Yeah, look, most of the things I come in contact with is, is often when we get to play, you know, a lot of the Pacific Island nations and, and that's, you know, that's very rare. Uh, it's very much in a, uh, a World Cup year. And if we're serious about growing the game, it benefits both sides, that's for sure. And if we're serious about growing the game or being the global game that Dan was speaking about earlier, we need to allow that to happen. We need to foster that. And, you know, if we're playing a, a match once every four years against, you know, tier one, tier two nations, it's it, it's just not enough. So if we're serious about that, I think um, there needs to be a bit of change there. Last year we played, we were lucky enough, outside of Rugby World Cup to play Samoa in, in Western Sydney. I mean, if you know anything about Australia, Western Sydney's you know, almost... Very akin to up here. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of islanders there. There's a lot more island supporters than Australians. And I think we, you know, purely from a business point of view, we can leverage from that. We can actually give back to the game, and we can grow the game in in, in a great way and be that global game that Dan was speaking about. That leads us on nicely to my next question, and that's that the, the Veda Mali report itself noted the lack of a fair program of matches for all of World Rugby's member unions, including at World Cups. And my question is, how big a problem is this and how can it be remedied? Matt's already touched on that. So if I could ask you, Dan, what you think about that? Matt touched on the the fact that Tier 2 nations get very few matches against uh, Tier 1 opposition outside of Rugby World Cups, which makes it more difficult to uh, perform when you get to the World Cup, particularly if you've got, uh, you know, shorter turnarounds than uh, some of those bigger teams and probably less depth in your squad as well in terms of players being able to develop the scheduling of matches 
at World Cups that is the shop window for a lot of these guys. It's how they're going to get uh, contracts moving forward. You know, the eyes of the world of the rugby world and, and the greater you know sporting world are on you know on, on everybody every four years. But the sad reality is is that um, for the other three and three quarters of a World Cup cycle, tier two nations are very much outside of that, um, you know, um, that reckoning. So I think, you know, in the long term, it's not just the World Cup problem. Actually, we, we need to be looking at ways that we can um, establish meaningful competition for tier two um, and tier three nations so that there's a pathway for them to actually, um, you know, be having um, you know, productive and meaningful test matches outside of um, World Cups. And if I could ask a follow-up question, and feel free not, not to answer this if you don't want to. If we ignore World Cups and we, and we look at the rest of the, the cycle, as you said, will someone who is playing test matches for, say, Samoa in that period, will they, and, and who, say, is based in Europe, so they're going to have to travel back for home matches, will they, in fact, make any money from making that commitment in terms of match season and things like that? Or will actually it just be a sort of break-even proposition just from a Samoan player's point of view, and I don't think much has changed in the five years since I retired, you're lucky if you're breaking even. We got paid, I think, you know, to pay, play, for instance, uh, to play against uh, England at Twickenham. We got paid £400 for that match. You know, your wife stays with you. You know, you, you put your wife up for, for a few days, you know, around the game. It's very quickly gone. Definitely, you know, in in, uh, in West London. So um, that's the reality. And it, and it always has been. But I like to think that, you know, in the professional era, that could possibly change, but it's not going to change unless you know somebody makes noise about it. And, you know, this is why we wanted to get this those submissions in the Velo Mani report. We made them public because you speak to the average punter or supporter of England rugby, you know, a rugby supporter at Twickenham on on, on match day. And um, I've done this myself. I went and did a survey um, and just asked them, and, and they had no idea that the uh, you know I think it was Fiji playing the playing England that day when I, when I went around and they had no idea the disparity in, uh, in, the, in the money that was avail- being made available. I think England players were getting paid £27,000 to play against Fiji who were getting £350 on, on the same, same day. In my mind, that's, you know, that's, that gap's become too wide and it's not all about money. When there's that sort of disparity, you, you do start to ask questions. And what's your suggestion, Dan? Obviously, um, I have read the report, but maybe some of our listeners won't have read the report. What's your suggestion for trying to push back against that inequality? Well, again, we, you know, we, we submitted the submissions that were made to World Rugby and we feel that they've got to take responsibility, greater and a greater responsibility for the, the state of the game. And at the moment, it does, you know, you get the sense that it's the, that the game's being controlled by the tier one nations. I'm sure it'll come up in conversation later on, but um, you know the, the voting power, the fact that the tier one nations have three votes now, and you've got uh, Tonga, who are ranked 13th of the world, who have zero, you know, no voting power at all, apart from the voting power that they have shared collectively under Oceania Rugby, which is you know very very tiny. So we've got this lack of influence that needs to change. That's one thing. But also, you know, we, we touched on it, you know, more, more matches, more meaningful matches. And then we need to look at the way that the, you know, the profits from, from those, you know, the, at, at the moment, the gate taking is all held by the, by the host nation. So when, when Samoa or Tonga plays against Wales at, at the Millennium Stadium, Wales keeps 100% of the, of the gate and the uh, TV revenue, everything. But then, you know, very rarely does a, does a tier one nation come to, to play us in the Pacific. And even if they did, there's just not the, um, you know, the, the buying power there to make any money from, from games, even if we did host them, to ever invest back into, into grassroots. 
for me, it's, it comes down to that governance that I spoke about first, that um, the voting power and the influence that the, that, that the richer tier one nations do have becomes a block that makes it very difficult for any, anything to change. So that's probably where I'd start. And Matt, can I come back to something you, you said earlier? You mentioned that you were privileged to play against Samoa recently outside of the World Cup in Sydney. And that, that was you know, a great experience. Obviously, you've got a, a personal connection with Samoa. In terms of the, the wider dressing room, was there any feeling amongst the Australian players of sort of, we should do this more often? Yeah, definitely look out. A lot of the you know, rugby calendars are quite repetitive now, for good or bad or whatever. So it is always quite nice when you can play against a different nation. And, and look, the personal connection wasn't unique to myself. I think we have over 40% of Australian rugby professional players are of Pacific Island heritage or Fijian as well. So there's, you know, there, there's a lot there and, it, and to deny that connection would be silly. I think, you know, particularly, you know, when we talk about what Dan was talking about earlier with Fiji playing in, you know, at a sold out Twickenham and the huge disparity between the players, you know, I think that between the, you know, the payments, I think you've, you've got to treat it differently. You know, how it's treated if it's tier one versus tier one, often they are, uh, you know, similar gate taking in terms of the, the share. However, it's it's understood that, you know, England will come here for three-match series or Ireland will come to Australia in which we have the chance to recuperate that and we, we have the chance to kind of play our part. However, that's not that's not the case with the Pacific Islands and, and clearly that's not level footing. So there needs to be something done there, whether it's, you know, the teams travel to, to the islands or there's a fair and equitable revenue sharing model where obviously it won't be equal. You know, the disparity mentioned earlier is, is, is clearly far too great, and I think everyone would agree with that. And Ben, focusing now on the World Cup for a moment, there's a section in the report which sets out a sort of statistical analysis of the unfairness of World Cup match scheduling historically. Can you briefly explain for the listeners what that statistical analysis established? Yeah, so so generally speaking, tier two nations, you know, we're talking about the Pacific Islands, maybe some of the smaller nations from South America or Europe, they've been faced with shorter rest breaks between their matches or certainly shorter rest breaks before their most important matches. Their big games against the, the heavy hitters of world rugby or against their sort of closest rivals. So, so that's really the big issue. And in terms of the stats, between in the five World Cups from 2003 to 2019, in which there were both 10 tier one, 10 tier two nations in each tournament. On only 17 occasions, as a tier two union had 20 or more days to complete their pool stage fixtures, giving an idea of you know, the number of days off they're likely to have had. Whereas tier one unions have had that privilege 44 times. And Dan, you've been to World Cups of Samoa. Was this something i guess it must have been but was this something that was a point of discussion amongst you and your teammates about how unfair the scheduling was oh i'll tell you what with Samoa, it was probably the least of our uh, of our issues <laughs> when we got to a world cup we were just happy to be there <laughs> and when we got there particularly in, in 2011 in new, in new zealand the last world cup that i played in we had to play namibia on a Wednesday and then we were playing uh, on a Sunday against uh, Wales and Wales our match against Wales was always going to be the uh, the decider really of the of the pool with uh, South Africa in there as well uh, we lost our uh, frontline 10 against Namibia and we didn't have them against Wales and we lost by a uh, by close margin and I think if we'd had you know if we'd had uh, Tusi PC that day playing at 10 you know things could have been very different for us 
And yeah, so, so so I think that's the hardest thing when you're when you're when you're player player and the you know the pinnacle of, of the sport is is a World Cup, obviously, and you work so hard to get there. And there's a lot of hurdles that you have to jump over and crawl under, whether you're a tier one nation player or a tier two player nation. You know, everyone works it's hard to be there. And when you look back and you think, oh, geez, you know, if, if only you know we'd had an extra two days, we might have had that guy, and we might have we might have been there, and then you know. We might have been in a quarterfinal. There's, you don't want to have those questions as players at the end of your career. And I'm at the end now where I'm reflecting. Now, you don't necessarily have the time to, as I say, during the competition, but it's, it's back. It's, it's, it's two years, three years on that, that those regrets start to, to hurt even more. Sorry, mate, I get a bit emotional about these kind of things. That's the, the reality of the situation, and you feel for it. Moving back to the, the World Rugby Governance Review briefly, given the manner in which that review has been set up, do you think that change is realistic? And if I could ask you that first of all, Dan. It's a good question. We're hopeful that change can uh, be a result of this. We wouldn't have bothered working with Ben to put the Vela Money report together if we hadn't thought that that was, you know, that there was a glimmer of hope there. I guess the you know the, the key the key barrier to it all is um, the, the makeup of the of the of the of the panel, the review panel. It was labelled by World Rugby, and, and you know they they made a big sort of fuss about it. You know, an independent governance report, but actually, it's only effectively um, independently led. Straight away, we saw you know when we when we lodged the Vela Manu report, we saw kickback from World Rugby saying that you know we were only going to be accepting submissions from uh, you know from recognised players associations. I think they said was was the key word, which PRPW doesn't come under strictly because um, we refuse to take funding from them, so we're outside of their funding circle. To blatantly say that you won't take submissions from anybody outside of that funding circle for, for me is a, a bit of a, a red light, uh, you know, a warning light comes up there. And saying that, you know, we've got a lot of trust and faith in, in Hugh Robertson to, you know, to, to get the right outcomes for the game. And actually, I think on, in, within World Rugby itself, they do want to see change. They want to see the game grow and become uh, a global sport, as Matt was alluding to. But we really need to, some, to see some sort of um, reform come out of this. Hopefully it can, it can happen. And Ben, without wishing to prejudge the review, do you think that given the manner that it's been set up, change is likely to occur? I think we're probably going to see some change. I think the fact it's being led by Sir Hugh Robertson, chairman of the British Olympic Association, there's clearly an intent there to produce some sort of findings that can affect change within the organisation. I don't think they'd have gone out and found someone of his calibre um, to head a review if, if there wasn't going to be some change coming from it. But that, that being said, I am concerned about how effective the review can be, given the conflicts of interest that exist within the working group that is conducting the review. So there are three independent members, um, Sir Hugh Robertson, Sir Peter Cosgrove and Angela Ruggiero. But Ruggiero is on the World Rugby Executive Committee herself. Then you've got the heads of the French, Welsh, South African and Argentinian federations. And then you also have the World Rugby Chairman and CEO in the working group. And I'm concerned about how effectively this group will be able to conduct a thorough scrutiny of the organization's governance when people that are heavily personally invested in the organization are, are at the core of that review. And I personally would have preferred, and I'm sure Dan would agree with this, to have seen a, a completely independent review. And we, we saw that, for example, with the World Athletics Governance Review and also the International Cricket Council's governance review in 2012, uh, that one being led by Lord Wolfe along with PwC. And I think that 
strongly independent review would be more likely to produce effective change, in my opinion. And moving on then to the governance of the game in the Pacific Islands and what role World Rugby plays in relation to that. Dan's already mentioned that a particular characteristic of Pacific Island rugby is that there can be quite a, a large degree of political involvement or political interference, you might say. And certainly a, a surprising closeness between the state and rugby. How does that ultimately affect players, do you think, Dan, that situation? It's tough, you know, when you've got your Prime Minister coming in, arriving into the country and, and waking you up at four in the morning the night before a test match to give a, a, a G-up speech or, or pulling out players because he prefers, you know, the, the, the Samoan Sevens team's done well that weekend and he wants to see a few of the Sevens boys in the 15s and just coming in totally, you know, picking his own team. Um, it can be interesting. Again, you know, it's, um, you know what Maddie touched on and, and, and Ben, uh, to a certain degree, there is um, there, there does need to be change there. I, I think I think the proximity and the presence and some of the issues that we encounter with um, with the involvement of politicians and uh, just overall, um, you know, bad governance at, at times is um, are symptoms of the of the of the, the wider issues in the game. Being, you know, it goes back to that influence and the and the and the profit share. You know, the way that money is being re- redistributed in the game. Because you go to the islands, and you know, and I've done this, and I've spoken to the you know the CEOs there, and there's just you know, there's just no money, and there's nowhere to go apart from to to, to the government. And um, you know, the government the government of Samoa, to, to their credit, funds a heck of a lot of uh, you know of the game there. Only thirty percent of the of the of the money necessary to run the Samoan Rugby Union is provided by World Rugby, you know, 10% comes from, you know, small, a small amount of sponsors that they, they do do have. And then the other, you know, the other 60% comes from government. And with that money comes, you know, um, there's special strings attached. You know, they're not just going to give that money without having one of their guys sitting at the top of the rugby unions. I guess the question to, you know, to, to chuck back at you is how do we move away from that model? You know, is, is it the fault of the, of the Pacific Island unions or is it the system? Is the system actually designed to keep to keep things this way? It's not as easy as um, you know saying that we just can't have government officials involved in rugby in the Pacific because you take the, you take government out of of the Pacific, the Pacific rugby. We we don't have rugby teams. There's no easy solutions here. I'll pass that difficult question on to you then, Ben. How, how do we move away from that? Well, I think Dan hinted at it. It, it all comes back to the the commercial model that the game operates uh, and it feeds back to what we were speaking about earlier about potential revenue sharing, more tests for these nations against other, you know, big opposition or at least high profile matches. Because I think really it's a vicious cycle. These nations are generally unable to host test matches or unable to generate much money from them when they do. That leaves them in a, in a state where they can't generate income they can't fund themselves and they're not getting any money when they play abroad either so that's why they turn to government so i think if world rugby can find a way to ensure that when these nations play matches against wealthier countries they're able to take something away from that they're able to generate revenue from these games then that should reduce the need for this public funding and therefore reduce the involvement of government which in itself should allow the countries, the nations, to, to govern themselves better in a, in a sporting sense. And then with that better sports governance, 
hopefully will, will come further commercial opportunities. Because at present, what sensible rugby business person would want to go into business with, for example, the Tongan Rugby Union? Most sensible business people wouldn't. But if, if you can break the cycle of underfunding and therefore reliance on, on, on the government, which in itself leads to poor governance, hopefully, by raising the overall standards in these unions, they'll be able to become self-sufficient. Do any of you think that the development of club rugby or the equivalent of club rugby in the Pacific Islands has a role to play? We focus only on national rugby at the moment. I think it certainly could. I think if, if it's funded in the right way and structured in the right way, it could certainly provide revenue for the unions. If it was, for example, owned, let's say, a, a Pacific club rugby team was created and it was co-owned by the Fiji Rugby Union, the Samoa Rugby Union and the Tongan Rugby Union, for example, then of course any commercial success that that team has can be then distributed amongst those unions. And then those unions would be able to invest in the grassroots game and they'd be able to develop their, their pathways to bring players through. And hopefully then they'd be able to hang on to a few more of their top players and we'd see less of this player drain effect that we've seen for so long. I think that's the nail on the head really is the national sides are the drivers of the, of the revenue that, that, that feed the um, you know, grassroots in any level. You know, that's why um, Australian Rugby Union puts so much money into the Wallabies and the same for the RFU um, with England. You know, and, and, and they see, you know, they, they invest, it's seen as an investment from the unions they put into the top teams and that filters down to, to grassroots. We're not seeing that return. We're not seeing, a, seeing that investment into our, uh, our, our top sides. As Matt said at the start, you know, there's, there's a lack of visibility for four teams and then ultimately that you know that means that has a massive impact on grassroots so I, I see a lot of you know and, and maybe in, in tier one nations you know it makes sense to you know to, um, to, to to broaden that base of the of the pyramid so that you have the, the broader the base of the pyramid the higher you know the higher you can go and that's you know that's the concept you want to you want to build upon what we're seeing is that our you know our, our pyramid is actually you know upside down there's a, a huge drain of players uh, from the islands at, at a very young age and you you know, we, we see, um, you know, um, not just from rugby union, but we see uh, rugby league now. Um, the NFL had first, you know, traditionally they've only been based in uh, in American Samoa. They ran um, scouting camps in Western Samoa or um, up here in the last two consecutive years. So, um, you know, the NRL competition is, um, you know, in line with what Maddie said, those stats of 40 to 50% of Pacific Islanders in rugby union, it's probably even higher than the 16 teams in the, in the NRL rugby league competition. The Sharks are circling um, and, and the Pacific Islands have always been traditionally seen as a, a bit of a breeding ground and a, you know, a conveyor belt of talent, of an endless conveyor belt. And the reality is it's not an endless you know, conveyor belt. It definitely, you know, again, you know, Samoa and Tonga are very small populations. And you know, we're, we're hearing instances now of you know, Tonga losing their top 40 schoolboys every year, you know, constantly to go into a top-up year of, you know, on a scholarship at either, in either Australia, New Zealand or England or Wales now around the world. And in a country of, you know, with a, with a, a rugby population of uh, 8,000 8, people, to lose your top 40 players every single year, it's a, it's a, it's a massive, massive drain. And the only way you, you're going to change that is uh, to have some sort of pathway, something that's going to hold those players there. And at the moment, aspiring to play for Tonga is not the pathway required because, again, you know, for, for all of those reasons that we've, that we've mentioned. In the case of the Pacific Islands, it's got, to be, it's got to be investment into the top before we can start looking at investing into, into, into the bottom, if that makes sense, uh, Tom. And in terms of the social impact of that, 
great movement of young players away from the Pacific Islands, whether to Australia or New Zealand or, or Europe. Matt, in your experience, perhaps from your time in Europe, what have you seen in terms of the difficulties that young Pacific Islanders can, can face when they move many thousands of miles away from home? Anyone moving thousands of miles away from home is going to, to struggle. You see it with the Pacific Islanders. You see it with a lot of the South African guys as well, particularly the Afrikaans base players. The thing I probably probably want to touch on is the, the incentive to go back and, and give back to your country at the moment is, is, is so low. You know, if you if you're playing in France on a decent wage, and then you you know you you want to go play for your your country, whether it be Fiji, Samoa, or Tonga, for for less money and for a, a company which you or a company a, a union which you suspect is is not governed in the best way it could be, in fact, you know, and, and could be a lot worse. You, your incentive to go back is is almost nothing, and that's as as Ben alluded to earlier. It's it's a it's a vicious cycle. If you, as I say, if you you're guaranteed a good wage overseas, uh, why would you go back and, and give back to that? And if that's the case, then the team's not gonna gonna do well on the public stage. And in terms of visibility, it's it's not gonna be great when you know these tier two unions are losing in big matches. So it kind of starts at the top, as Dan said. Unfortunately, you, you do have to invest in the top in this case. And, and governance is probably the the first the first issue here uh, because yeah, purely from a, a player's point of view, I know players aren't aren't keen to go back to you know a small island with with poor conditions, on less money with a, a union that you may suspect is corrupt. And if that's the case, then you know it's it's never going to get rectified if, if if that continues. Touching now on another issue raised in the report, and that's French academies in Fiji and the impact on, on young Fijian players. Ben, perhaps if you could, could explain, give a background to that issue. Yeah, so what we know from various media reports, internationally and from, from Fiji, is that there are at least two, two or three, I understand, French clubs that have essentially academies set up in the Fijian islands to get young players involved with these clubs from a very early age to identify the top talent with a view for them then going over to Europe, going over to France, and obviously eventually making it into the, the first team for those clubs. Um, I think Dan's probably better place to talk about the impact that has, but just from a legal sort of regulatory perspective, that's not allowed under the World Rugby Regulations. Regulation 4 specifically addresses this issue and makes clear that it's absolutely not on, and yet it continues to happen. And it happens publicly. It's not a secret. Everyone knows that it happens. World Rugby knows that it happens. And yet nothing has been done to change it. And that is, for me, very alarming. Dan, what, what can you say about the impact in your experience of that setup? The impact is, is real, not only with, with France now, but uh, you know, with, with, with Japan coming into Samoa and, and Tonga and offering offering you know scholarships to, to university on the basis you know when I when I used to play for Samoa we used to play you know we used to beat Japan by thirty or forty points and now they beat us by that much but they've got four or five Samoans playing for them and that's the uh, that's the reality of of, of if, we, if we turn out a blind eye to these situations and they, a lot of those guys are coming through and, and aspiring to play for France now with the eligibility changes you've got to have lived in a country for five years now and so nations are using these you know these academies to bring players over so that they can by the time they're 20 you know they've lived in in france for five years because they're bringing them over at 15 or 16 
for us, that's that's too young. You know, we're, we're, we're obviously in contracts this year. Last year, the first one was a, a kid coming from Tonga that was leaving, and he was, you know, he was 13 years old. He wasn't to play for Tonga; he's to play for Japan. So, how's that a good thing? You know, and 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 what are what are the governing body doing to to regulate these these situations? I mean, you can't just continually pass the buck. You've got to you've got to confront them at some stage. Otherwise, you know, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, I mean, that's what we I guess while we're here as an organisation to try and hold them to account on, on this. But you know. You know, we need to see change on, on all of these issues, particularly this one for me. It's, it's, a, it's a one that's very close to my heart. Can I just ask a follow-up? Sorry, I yeah, don't know yeah, if, if Matt, Matt or Dan wants to come in on this, but in terms of the impacts on these players, these young players that, let's take the Fiji guys as an example, the ones that are going across to France, what's the social impact on them being in France so far away from home? Do you want to just touch on that? We've seen across the board, you know, this isn't just the Pacific Island thing. This is, you know, rugby players and probably men in general, you know, um, mental health issues have been massively on the rise. I think the risk when you, when you, when you see players coming across and committing to a, a career in rugby so early on, it's, it's a lot of pressure, particularly on a young guy who's, you know, leaving home at maybe, you know, on average, you know, maybe 16 or 17 years old and, uh, you know, and the, and the hopes of, uh, of a village and the family and the village and the church are, are all on this guy that he's going to go and make and he's going to become the next Jonah Lomu or Torah Kefu. And the reality is, is that, you know, that's, you know, probably not, not going to happen, not to that, to that extent it could, but it's, um, you know, it's a lot to deal with. And uh, so we, I guess, as an organisation, uh, you know, that's, was at the, at the heart of you know setting up as we, we saw a lot of mental health issues you know we've got the highest rates of youth suicide in the world in the pacific islands anyway and that's just exemplified and, and probably um you know heightened when um when there's you know 10 times 100 times more pressure on these young guys going over to to france to you know to to earn money to send back home so yeah the the social impact on on that you know that's purely from a economic point of view then you add on top of that the uh the difficulties you know that they can have with the language and the culture and, and all of that have you had any first-hand experience of that matt with with pacific island players yeah definitely you know there's a there's a huge uh pressure there and but at the same time you know a lot of a lot of people still choose to choose to do it and that doesn't mean that oh we just just let them be now um there's got to be a lot of support there uh, you know, I said this before, it benefits the club, it benefits the union to do that rather than just, you know, bring players over and, and leave them to their own. You, you'll get a better player if there is a lot of better support. And I think that's why, you know, organisations like, like PRPW are, are crucial for that because whilst whilst it's concerned with the welfare for the player, it, it has a material effect on on the club and, and it benefits the club and and. And hence, why the the club should be incentivized to to invest in that place and 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 help you know their players who are obviously facing a lot of challenges because it is unique. Myself, for instance, I go over to England to play, and, and you know I'm I'm not worried about supporting the suburb back in Australia. It, it is completely different. Whereas you know a lot of the island guys have, and and Dan doesn't exaggerate when he says this. He has a, they have a village, you know, aware of what's going on and and. And hoping that a bit of money comes through or you know and and, and that's a lot of pressure for, for for a young man or for any man to take on and, and in particular if they are you know in in, in their early 20s or, or even earlier i don't think you're setting yourself up for a sustainable system there and then if, if we move on finally to voting rights on the world rugby council one issue of particular concern to tier two nations perhaps the biggest issue and we've already touched on it is the fact that they are weighted unequally and in favour of the established unions. So if I could go to you first of all, Matt, obviously you're, you're a player for 
Australia and therefore for one of the dominant tier one nations. Is this something that you've previously considered the unequal voting rights? Uh, and if so, how does it make you feel? Do you feel instinctively that well, it's unfair? Why should it be like that? Yeah, look, from, a, from an Australian rugby player's point of view, it's obviously serves us well. <laughs> but I think in, in terms of the, the broader the game, uh, look, quite frankly, Tom, nothing's going to change unless, um, um, unless that changes. You know, everyone votes in their own interests. And if you're not given much chance to voice your opinion or, or you put your case forward, then of, of course no one's going to look out for that. So I, it's, it's, it's pretty simple for me. That's, nothing's going to change unless that is, is amended, you know, which I spoke about visibility earlier on. There, there's going to be no visibility if, if, if countries don't even have a vote or if, if their vote is, is half of, of, of another country's. And you can look at it in different other areas, whether it be politics or whatever, it would be pretty... Yeah, if you draw comparisons, no one would agree with would agree with that. And Ben, just just briefly, are you aware of any other major international sports federation where the voting rights are unequal or unequal to that extent? Not in this way. There are various different ways that federations structure their voting. Sometimes it's done by association, and then different associations get a different number of votes. But I think that's mainly based on their size mm-hmm. rather than their historical influence so no it's as, as far as i can tell it's pretty unparalleled and dan what are your views on this particular issue or what would you like to say i'm not totally in disagreement that there should be some sort of tiered um, voting system in a perfect world would would have a, a one vote one country one vote system but let's be honest you know we're so far from that, that you know three you know that even you know bringing it a little bit closer would probably be a, a step in the right direction as a as some sort of compromise and also you, you give an incentive to some of those uh, countries who aren't displaying you know good governance at the moment to aspire to maybe a second vote i don't think anyone should have three votes when there's countries that don't have any votes and you're a top 20 nation i think that, that the gap's too far so again it's about you know not necessarily um abolishing the system but bringing it a little bit closer i question whether it's actually achievable for you know countries like the pacific islands to ever achieve the three vote status and that's that's a problem you know because if you're going to have this weighted system it's got to be achievable for all nations I and mean, if it's unachievable then we need to look at how we can make you know that that influence greater you know fairer more fairly weighted well, unfortunately, Dan, that currently is unachievable because the third vote given to these tier one unions is given to them on the very basis of their membership of the Six Nations or Rugby Championship. Now, that's explicitly stated in, in World Rugby Bylaw 9, which deals with the voting rights. And the issue is that these are privately owned, privately run competitions. And the tier two unions aren't, aren't, aren't part of those competitions. and They're very unlikely to become part of them because the owners don't really want to open them up, certainly at this stage. So at present, there is no way for the tier two unions of the Pacific Islands to get that third vote, even if they did have the commercial power to get the second vote, because the second vote is dependent on all sorts of commercial criterion. So it is currently unachievable. And I'm inclined to agree with you that that, that's not a satisfactory position. The 10 major unions that have the three votes hold just under 60% of the overall voting power, which means that for the election of the chair of world rugby which only requires it's done on a simple majority vote that election could be won with the support of just nine member unions of world rugby 
bearing in mind that World Rugby has a membership of over 100 unions. There are nine sufficiently powerful unions to, to win that election alone, which is bizarre. Well, on that sadly slightly negative note, we will wrap things up because we've run out of time. Thank you very much to Dan and Matt for joining us and for being so generous with their time. For analysis and articles on athletes' rights issues, please go to our website, www.morgansl.com. If you're interested in signing up to our mailing list or if there are any topics that you would like to see addressed in a future podcast, please email us at podcasts at morgansl.com. Finally, please connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook for articles, updates, and news pieces. We hope that you've enjoyed listening and that you will join us for future episodes of Play On.